Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new short little two or three episode series on Genesis and the Ten Words with James Shorten. And here he's going to be talking about issues with Genesis, mostly authorship, as well as the seven sections that pair with the 10 words that he's going to be talking about later. And we think that this talk will maybe bring up some new thoughts for you and highlight some things in the text that you may not have seen before. Theopolis is now on Apple Music and Spotify. We're going to be putting our psalm chants on those platforms. We've currently got Psalms 2 and 3 up, and we'll be adding more and more in the future. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here's James Jordan on Genesis and the 10 words. One thing that has been of interest to me recently that I'll share with you, and then again, this is typical Biblical Horizons conference lecture. It wipes out anything I've ever said in the past. Just dismiss everything you've ever heard before from me. And uh, also is uh, somewhat tentative. But the thesis that I'll be investigating today and tomorrow in the time that I have, is that the narrative found in Genesis and in Exodus chapters 1 to 19 can be analyzed in nine sections that thematically anticipate, in order, the first nine of the ten words. Now, this is an idea that first came to me from the work of Callum Carmichael, a liberal exegete who has written at least two books and a number of studies on the thesis, his thesis, that the authors of Deuteronomy and of Exodus, as they took the mysterious figure of Moses from the dim past and created a literary Moses, a fictional Moses who was lawgiver, and did this sometime around the 5th or 6th century B.C., were reflecting on the traditional stories and historical accounts of Israel's history and then creating laws out of what they were stimulated by. And so, for instance, they had in their records that there was a King Ahab, and of course this is late enough to where liberals believe that there really was an Ahab and Jezebel. And... This Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and so he stole it under Jezebel's impetus, and then he was judged for it because the prophets condemned it. Well, about two, three centuries later, when the priests got together and constructed what we call the Mosaic Law, they reflected on that, and they said, well, let's put a law in that says the property is given by God and it can't be alienated, and that will be an ideal. And then we'll backdate it and say that this was given by Moses a thousand years ago. (laughs) So that's how it came about. Well, we don't need to adopt that thesis, but it does stimulate, like reading unbelievers or anyone that you read, it can stimulate your thought. And when you look at the Bible again, you may notice something you haven't noticed. I began to notice that, as a matter of fact, in Genesis and in Exodus, you do have historical events that seem to anticipate the law. Now, there's no doubt about this, in that there are things in the law that God gave at Sinai 
that are anticipated in Genesis. For instance, the law states that if brothers live together in the same place and the firstborn son or an older son marries a woman and he dies without having given birth to a son, may have ten daughters, but if he hadn't had a son yet, then one of his unmarried younger brothers is supposed to take the widow and marry her and the first male child will be considered to be the son of the dead older brother, and then any later children will be considered the children of this new marriage. That's the Leveret Law. Well, you see that principle functioning in Genesis chapter 38, although no law has been given. What do we make of that? Do we say that, well, this was a custom around the ancient world? that by divine providence had come into being and God simply ratified it in the law? Or do we say that God had revealed this earlier to Abraham but it's not written down because God wasn't going to write things down until the law was given? We can't really completely answer that. We don't want to say that God just looked around the ancient world and said, hey, that's a good idea, I think I'll put that in the law. That's not the God of the Bible. However these anticipations came about, whether by direct revelation or indirectly, they are all in the plan of God. What I want to investigate is the thesis that the Ten Commandments in order are revealed in ten blocks of narrative material or ten blocks of material in Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. The first nine precede the giving of the Ten Commandments and the narratives that reflect on the Tenth Commandment come after the giving of the law. And perhaps you can think of why that might be. We'll get to it. But to begin with, let's look at the book of Genesis. If there's anything to this, it needs to match, to at least to some degree, the literary structure of Genesis. And Genesis is a book that has a very clear-cut literary structure in it. It isn't like Jonah, which is just a confused morass until you've had a couple of beers, and then you can begin to dream up some relationships between things. No, you don't need beer to see the literary structure of Genesis. It's got blocks of material in it. And these are laid out in Toledoth sections. The word Toledoth means generations. It is related to the fundamental root yalad, which means to bear or beget, and thus generate. If you are a woman and you yalad, you bear a child. If you're a man and you yalad, you beget a child. That can be used either way for bearing or begetting, and thus, in a more general way, to generate, to give birth to something, to spawn something, to issue something into the future. And it's translated, these are the generations of. It's not the same as the word generation, which refers to a particular period of time. That's the word door. So if you say Abraham's generation or this generation, that's the word door. It's talking about a group of people living at a particular time. That's not the meaning. It means these are what are generated out of something. Now that understanding has been challenged. Let's just read a couple of passages in case you don't remember this exactly. Genesis chapter 6, 
verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. And Noah walked with God and so forth. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, when they marry, they generate something. And so the heavens being masculine and the earth, Adamah being feminine, the two of them get together, the spirit breathes into dust, and the heavens and the earth, male and female, breath and dust, give birth to humanity. Humanity is the offspring of the heavens and the earth. The offspring, that's what would be a good translation. Now, that's been challenged, and you'll hear this, and it floats around, and I used to think there's a lot of substance to this, but I don't think so any longer. It's got problems, and that's the Wiseman hypothesis, first suggested by P.J. Wiseman, professor of Assyriology at the University of London, in 1936 in his book New Discoveries in Babylonia about Genesis, which is reprinted in Clues to Creation in Genesis in 1977, a book that combines this book with his work on Genesis 1, which is useless. He says the six days in Genesis 1 are days in which God revealed things to Moses. Not a workable hypothesis, just one more attempt to try to get around a late day for creation. Such an embarrassment, we've got to figure out a way around Genesis 1. At any rate, Wiseman wasn't evangelical, he's a fine scholar, but these two books represent his speculations on the edge. He made a made good lecture at uh, Biblical Horizons Conference. What he points out is that if you go to clay tablets in the ancient world, you'll find that clay tablets sometimes have the title of the tablet at the end rather than the beginning of the tablet. So we've got our clay tablet here, and it's got cuneiform writing on it. Let's take about ten minutes here and draw some cuneiform letters on it. Little wedgies here on the text. And these wedgies go all the way down, and then down at the bottom we have a wedgie or two that says that this thing is called Memoirs of Shade. That's the title, and it's down here at the bottom. Well, it's probably over here. Before the New Covenant, everybody writes this way. So, it's this way. The title, The Memoirs of Shade. It's down here at the bottom of the tablet, not like we would do it. We would put it up at the top and start it. They would put it down at the bottom. And he says, hey, you know what? Maybe these ten Toledoth sections in Genesis were originally separate tablets or groups of tablets and this statement, these are the generations of, is the end of the tablet and not the beginning in their titles. And so they indicate the end of a section rather than the beginning of a section. So, when we read in Genesis 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the last statement of that section. It ought to be, in chapter 4, verse 27. That's what it ought to be instead of 5, verse 1. And that's the title 
of the story of the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, and the murder of Abel by Cain. That's the book of the generations of Adam. That's the title that comes at the end of that story. The statement, these are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. That's the title of Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2, verse 3. The title comes at the end and gives a title to everything that went before. And so it should be translated, these are the histories of, or these are the records of. This is where he gets some cash value out of this. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, these are the records of Adam. Tells you Adam wrote it. Adam wrote Genesis 2, 3, and 4. And then when we get to chapter 6, when it says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah, that should really be, these are the histories of Noah, or these are the records of Noah. It means Noah wrote Genesis 5 and chapter 6, verse to 8. We'd all like to believe that. I'd like to believe that. It's something that if you're conservative and you're sick and tired of liberal barking dogs telling you about form-critical stuff and you say, hey, you know, this is very attractive because now we can say that Genesis was written by these great patriarchs and these blocks of material. It's attractive. So it has attracted people to advocate it. In fact, the most pervasive advocacy of this is found in Roland Harrison's Introduction to the Old Testament, which is a great big fat book published by Erdman's that every single seminary student has and reads. You see, everybody uses Harrison. It's got everything in it. I'm sure it's not up to date since it's about 30 years old, but if you want to know everything that was going on up to 1969, it's in there, and it's evangelical, and he likes this idea, so he advocates it over the course of several pages. And as I say here, the attractiveness of the hypothesis is that it provides a credible answer to liberal literary source views concerning the origin of Genesis. No longer do we have a liturgical Roman Catholic Elohim God full of liturgies who is being combined with a windy, breathy, free-for-all neo-Orthodox Yahweh God who just drifts around in the desert. And so we have a J and an E, and they get stuck together in Genesis. We don't have to have those sources anymore. Now we can have these sources, the Adam source, and the Noah source, and the Abraham source. Well, there is no Abraham source. The Terra source, these guys who wrote these original sections, and then they're put together by Moses or Joseph or somebody, whoever organized the book. The problems with this view, which was attractive to me and I wrestled with for a number of years, and now I finally beat it down, is that, first of all, it stretches the possible meaning of the word toledoth virtually to the breaking point. There's really very tenuous to try to get histories or records out of this word generate. The word generate means to beget, to give birth to. It doesn't mean histories or family records. And to stretch it to that meaning is pretty tendentious. The root, well, root is what we call it. It's not a historical root, but it's just a grammatical root, yalad. It doesn't have that kind of meaning. It doesn't have that kind of implication. So it's just barely possible if there was a whole lot of other reason to think that this word might mean family records or histories, but by itself, that's extremely weak aspect of the hypothesis. The second thing, and what was more persuasive to me is, 
that the larger Toledo sections of Genesis, for instance, the Jacob narrative, the Abraham narrative, are so carefully written from a literary standpoint and so similar to one another in significant ways that it's much more likely that they came originally from one author. The Abraham narrative is one great, big, huge chiasm. And so is the Jacob narrative, and so is the Joseph narrative, and so is the flood narrative. And you start looking at these things, and we're not going to do it, but you start looking at them parallel, and you see that they're common themes that run through them. They're structured the same way. And so how likely is it that Noah, well, it wouldn't be Noah, it would be Shem who wrote the history of the flood and happened to write it in almost exactly the same way, that Ishmael wrote the history of Abraham, and that Esau wrote the history of Jacob. So that's who wrote these, according to this thesis. And they just happened to both all use very same kind of literary structures, the same kind of flow. It's not very likely. Genesis looks like it comes from one hand and not built up out of sources. Of course, whoever wrote Genesis, I'm sure, had some records to deal with. But the literary products that we have and these sections would seem to almost certainly have come from one author and not from a group of different authors. Third, the traditional understanding, which is that these are the offspring of, does far better justice to the theological concerns of Genesis, which is father-son relationships and the coming of new things in history. Genesis has as its major theological theme, theology in the strict sense, doctrine of God, this book is about the revelation of the Father and the Son. Everything in this book is about fathers and sons. Fathers and sons, fathers and sons, showing us something about God because man is the image of God and God exists as father and son and spirit. The spirit is only mentioned a few times in Genesis. But what's happening over and over again in Genesis is fathers and sons and grandsons and fathers and back to that. That whole series of relationships is all over this book. Well, to translate these are the generations of, these are the begettings of, these are the offspring of, flows very nicely with that theme, the father-son theme, the begetting theme. Not to do so to say these are just records or titles of play tablets or family records, simply sets that organizing phrase, the phrase by which the whole book is structured, that phrase is completely removed from the theme of the book. But the traditional understanding, these are the offspring of, takes this organizing, structuring phrase and puts it right into the theology of the book. And finally, the final difficulty with it is, without being adjusted, this procedure results in the Abraham narrative being the records of Ishmael. That's the title of it. Chapter 11, 27b to 25, verse 12 is the block of material on this theory. And the title of this block of material is The Records of Ishmael, which means Ishmael wrote it. And that's the Abraham story. And even worse, even more problematic, the Isaac-Jacob narrative from chapter 25, 19b to 36, 1 is The Records of Esau, which means Esau wrote it, which is pretty unlikely. So you have to start tinkering with it and say, well, okay, Records of Esau, that's a separate section within what's really the records of Jacob and Jacob wrote all this. Well, now you've already started to tinker with it. So the thesis becomes more and more problematic. Also, of course, 
who wrote the records of the heavens and the earth here in chapters 1 and 2 on this theory. You wind up doing a bunch of qualifications to it. It's very difficult to translate the word that way. So as neat as it is and as attractive as it is to say, hey, Genesis, Noah wrote part of it, Adam wrote part of it, it's pretty unlikely. On the other hand, I have no doubt that Adam knew how to write. You live 900 years, your memory is not going to suffice. You get into relationships with people. You get into a business deal with somebody, and two years later, you're both remembering it differently. That's why you have to write things down. When I was in the pastorate, we had two or three situations where men had gone into business together, and after about three years, they were at odds with each other, and so they're coming to the session, and we say, okay, where's your covenants? Well, we didn't write anything down because we were good Christian buddies. But I remember it this way, and the other guy remembers it that way. Well, you're dead in the water. You guys didn't write anything down. I said, look, guys, God wrote this down. He wrote down a covenant with us. And we're supposed to remind him of it. That's what praying the promises means. <laughs> he wants us to remind him of the covenant, just even as the covenant reminds us of what he says. You guys don't have anything in writing. You've got to have writing because human memory... Memory isn't fallible. Memory is temporary. If you just remembered everything all the time, you go crazy. You have to forget stuff. This only holds so much. There's only so much ROM up here. So you got to forget stuff and make room for new stuff. And that's why you have to write stuff down. So Adam lived in 930 years. He would have pretty soon have developed, you know, there would have been some fights between him and his sons over some arrangement they'd made, and they would have discovered the need to make some marks somehow for permanent records. So I don't doubt that Adam could write and Noah could write, and they may well have written stuff down. Some of Genesis does doubtless come from records kept by other people, but the literary sections themselves are not authored by these people. In fact, each Toledoth section displays what emerges from the previous one, and thus generations is a good translation. And that brings us then to a central aspect of the theology of Genesis, and that is that new things are continually coming out of old things. Old things die, and new things come. Death and resurrection. That starts in Genesis 1. I don't need to say this to you, but the seven days in Genesis 1 happen one after another in time. And what happens between each one is an evening and a morning so that the world dies into darkness and comes to life again. If you take out those evenings and mornings and that sequence of events, you have destroyed the theology of Genesis chapter 1, which is all about death and transfiguration. At the end of a certain day, God says it's good. And then that day goes down into darkness and comes up again into light. And in connection with that, it's not really good anymore. God has to do something new so that at the end of this day, it's good. When God makes the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day, he says it's good. Well, those didn't exist on the third day, so the third day must not have been good. So they didn't have any sun, moon, and stars on the third day. No, the third day was perfectly fine. But once you go through this transfiguring process, it's not good enough to have a world with firmament, and land and sea and grain and fruit trees on it, that's not good enough anymore. 
So God has to make the sun, moon, and stars, and then it's good. But once that goes down into darkness and death, I'll just let Jeff talk about this death thing, and comes back up again into light on the fifth day, that's not good enough anymore. So God has to make fish and birds. And that's fine for a while, but then once it goes down again and comes up, that's not good enough anymore. And God has to do the next thing. So you start to reflect on that, you have to ask, why do you have to have plants before you have stars? What is it about plants that means they have to come first and then stars? Stars can't come until after plants have come. Well, that would be more fun to talk about than what I'm going to talk about, but we won't, because I don't know the answer to that. But that's the kind of thing we ought to be thinking about, that even here in the very first week, we have a series of shadows of death and resurrection, of historical process through going down into darkness and coming back up into light, which means each day transfigures what was there before. Each day begets the next day. Obviously, you can't have plants until you have dry land. So you've got to have the dry land first, and then the plants can come. It's less obvious why you can't have stars until you have plants. It's kind of obvious that you can't have birds until you have trees. But it's not real obvious why you can't have stars until after you've had bread and wine plants or bread and oil plants. You've got to have those sacramental plants first, and then you can have stars got to have priests before you can have kings is what it means, I think, in part. But that's the kind of thing we ought to think about in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the very first chapter is about this dying and coming to life again in a new and transfigured way, not just running through a circle like Osiris dying and coming to life again, but making progress transfigured and begettings. And then that is carried out in the rest of Genesis each thing generates what comes after it. And I've got a chart of it here, the order and arrangement of the Toledoth sections. You have the introduction, which lays out the seven days. And then you actually have this phrase repeated ten times in the book for ten generations. We're going to group these in seven in a very obvious way in just a moment. But first you have the generations of the heavens and the earth. God makes the heavens and the earth. And he brings the earth to a certain point. Then on the sixth day, heaven and earth is married. The spirit comes into the Adama feminine soil and produces man. And that's the generation of heaven and earth. And that's Adam. Adam falls into sin. His sons carry forward his sin. And then at that point, what is generated from Adam? In chapter 5. It's not the unfallen Adam who's generating something in chapter 5. It is the Adam who has fallen into sin and whose sons have already sinned and who's already brought forth a replacement son, Seth. That is generating something. What generates out from that? That line falls into sin, but comes to Noah. What does Noah generate? That's the third section. What do the sons of Noah generate? That's the fourth section. They generate the nations, and the nations fall into sin at the Tower of Babel. Shem, the generations of Shem, is the fifth section. The generations of Terah, what comes out of Terah? Terah is an idolater who lives in Ur. What comes out of Terah? Abraham does. 
well. He doesn't come from Tira as the sinner. He comes from Tira and God saves him and takes him out of Ur. Then we have the generations of Ishmael, which is just a genealogy from him, and the generations of Isaac. Isaac generates Jacob and Esau. Isaac's a double-minded man. He's faithful and he's unfaithful. And he has two sons. The mirror twins. Evil twin and good twin. They're twins all over Genesis, and this is the classic twin here. Mirror twins. Good twin and an evil twin. They come from Isaac. Because Isaac is like all of us. He's redeemed, but he's still got a sin nature. So he gives birth to something that's mixed. And that's carried through, isn't it? I mean, what does Jacob's flock look like? Are there any white sheep in Jacob's flock? Not a single one. Any pure black goats in Jacob's flock? Not one. Every one of Jacob's sheep has some black spots on it. And every one of Jacob's goats has got some white stripes on it. Remember, Jacob takes the ones that are mixed. They'll stay mixed until the last judgment. In the last judgment, all the common grace will be sucked out of the goats and all the sin will be sucked out of the sheep. Until then, it's a mixed flock. Yeah, Laban is the one who is pure. His sheep are white. Good, Jeff, I'll remember that. Then in the ninth section, moving right along, we have the offspring of Esau, and the tenth section is the offspring, that which is generated out from Jacob. What does Jacob generate? Jacob is the man who has been faithful where Isaac wasn't, and he's wrestled with God, and he's been made a king, and he's been brought back into the land. What does he generate? Well, he also generates some problems, but primarily he generates Joseph. Because of Jacob's faithfulness in small things, Joseph is made faithful over the entire world. So the idea of being generated out of something previous does a whole lot to the understanding of the flow of the book of Genesis. Now, these ten sections can be grouped as seven according to a simple rule where there are two sons the line that is to be set to one side is delineated briefly first, and then the line that is in focus is taken up second. So this is just the way it looks. First of all, we have the introduction. We have the heavens and the earth. Then the second thing, what do these generate? They generate man, and man falls, and man commits murder. And then what comes out of that? The generations of Adam. And what comes out of that? The generations of Noah. And then, what is generated from that? Well, we have two groups, the generation of the sons of Noah and the generations of Shem. And those are different. They're different lists. Chapter 10 gives us the sons of Japheth, the generations of Japheth, what comes out of Japheth, what comes out of Ham, and what comes out of Shem, all except one group. Shem gives birth to Arpax, Had, and so forth, down to Eber, which is the word Hebrew, and Eber gives birth to two sons, Peleg and Joktan, and then this fourth group here, the generation of the sons of Noah, follows the Joktanites down to Babel and says nothing more about the Pelegites because they're the special group. Then the generations of Shem, 4b, starts here again and then runs us through Peleg down to Abram. 
because the Pelagites are the elect, elect to service, elect to salvation. Election has many meanings in Genesis, but they are the ones who are elect to carry out the special work of Shem is in the Peleg line, and that's in the second, 4b. So these are parallel. They both start at the same place, the sons of Noah. One carries down through everybody that's a Gentile, <laughs> and the other one carries down through the ones who are going to be the true Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews. Following that, out from that come the generations of Terah, which is the Abraham narrative. Then Abraham has two sons, and so we have two groups that follow. Ishmael first, because Ishmael is not elect. He's elect to eternal life, but he's not elect to carry the line of circumcision and priestly service. So we get a dozen or so verses giving us his children and his grandchildren and so forth. I don't remember all the details off the top of my head. And then we have the generations of Isaac, which is the whole Jacob Esau story. And Isaac has two sons, and so we get two sections after that. First of all, we get Esau, because he's the one that's set aside. And then we move to Jacob, the generations of Jacob, which are his sons, particularly Judah and Joseph in that last section. So let's just briefly finish this up, go over again in just a little bit more detail this flow of Genesis. And then in tomorrow's lecture, I'm going to try to match these sections up with the ten words. I'm going to try. <laughs> I'll give an effort, you know. You guys can cut it all down. Correct. The seven stages of emergence follow in human life the pattern of God's actions in the creation narrative as God brings each day out of the preceding one. So these seven sections of Genesis correspond to the seven days. God brings one day out of another for seven days, and then he brings one age out of another in the rest of Genesis to that pattern. So this is how I see it. The first block of material following the creation, the generations of the heavens and the earth, in 2.4 to 4.26. These correspond to day one, the creation of heavens and earth out of formlessness, which is the creation of man, the separation of light and darkness, which we can analogize, allegorize to the judgment on man and the division of Cain and Abel. And before I go any farther, for those of you who don't read every jot and tittle that I publish, that we publish at Biblical Horizons, I need to at least tell you this. Genesis chapter 2 begins... This is in Genesis, the chapter breaks are abominable. Of course, by Genesis 2, I mean Genesis 2, 4 to 24. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. It's the first time we have Yahweh God. Up to this time, it's just been God. God makes the world in six days, rests on the seventh. Then Yahweh God makes man. Now, listen to this. There was no shrub of the field in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For Yahweh God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But water used to flow out over the earth and water the entire face of the ground. And Yahweh God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, if you'll compare that with Genesis 1, the first day, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was 
shapeless, empty, and dark. Without form and empty and dark. The Spirit was hovering over it and water was over everything. Well, now notice, notice what this says here. It was unformed because the field, distinction between field and the rest of the world wasn't clear. And it was empty in the sense that there were no shrubs of the field. And there's water all over everything. There's water going all over the surface of the ground. That's the way it was. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. What corresponds to that here is Yahweh God formed man from dust. So man becomes a light. Then, in Genesis chapter 1, on the second day, God makes a firmament between the waters and the waters. Here, he plants a garden, verse 8, Yahweh God plants a garden toward the east in Eden, where he placed the man whom he had formed. Well, what do we find out about this? Well, we find out that this is Eden. In the east is a garden. A river arises in Eden, flows down through the garden, and then out to the rest of the world. So the garden is in between water and water. So this garden corresponds to the firmament, on day two. Now we can go through the entire chapter here and the actions of Yahweh God in Genesis 2 parallel the actions of Elohim in Genesis 1. And what that tells us is that the human world is a microcosm or has a symbolic relationship to the macrocosmic world. And so looking at the history in the later part of Genesis about human beings, human beings are following out at a human level, some of the larger or more unhuman aspects of the creation that are in Genesis 1. Human beings are light. Human beings are a firmament between God and the rest of the world. Human beings are trees and plants. Human beings are sun, moon, and stars, and so forth. That's clear from the rest of the Bible, but it starts being clear right here in Genesis. And that's why I say this first section here, which gives us the narrative of the creation of man as a light, the fall of man, the separation of men into different groups, is carrying out the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness. Then I would argue that the generations of Adam from chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, verse 8, which basically is a genealogy, this is the book of the offspring of Adam, in the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created him male and female, and he blessed them and named them Adam. The race is named Adam. It's not just the individual. So this is the generation of the human race. And when this human race had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, which is now singular word, pointing back to the individual Adam, and named him according to his image and named himself. So this image is passing down. And we follow it on down until we get the prophecy about Noah bringing rest. And then we find that they start intermarrying with the Canaanites and God decides to destroy them here in chapter 6, 1 to 8. That's the section. This, I would say, corresponds to day 2. The establishment of a firmament to separate waters above from waters below. The godly line of Seth is the human form of the firmament as they were the mediators between God and the rest of humanity. And the corruption of that line is answered by the removal of the firmament 
and the recoalescence of the waters of the flood. Two other things. You would have to get my paper on chronology in Genesis, but I discussed that these lifespans here in Genesis 5 correspond to astral cycles. This is a race of people positioned in the heavens. They are in the firmament. That's another strong parallel to this. But notice that at the same time God wipes out these people, at the same time he opens the firmament in heaven and brings waters down from heaven and collapses the firmament in the flood and then puts it back up again. So that the elimination of this firmament people, whose lifespans are like the stars, is answered by the elimination of the physical firmament in the flood and then putting it back together again when he calls Noah. So that's day two. Then day three, the generations of Noah, which is 6, 9 to 11, verse 9, and has two sections, corresponds to day three. Well, yeah, there are two sections here. The separation of land and sea is the flood, and a new separation of land and sea after the flood, and then the multiplication of plants on the land, which is in the second half of the third day, corresponds with Noah's vineyard. And the numbers are wrong here. That should be three generations of Noah, 6, 9 to 9, 29. Didn't make that correction. The fourth day has two sections, the generations of the sons of Noah and the generations of Shem, the offspring of Noah's sons and the offspring of Shem. Again, corresponding to light bearers to rule in the heavens. I wouldn't try to identify one as sun, one as moon, and one as stars. But we got these two sections. Chapter 10 carries the sons of Shem to Eber and then to the set-aside line of Joktanites who joined the sin of Babel. And chapter 11, 10 to 26 follows the other son of Eber, Peleg, in whose days the earth was divided at Babel, down to Abram. Then we have the generations of Terah, chapter 11, 27 to 25, 11. That corresponds, I would say, to day 5 when the great swarming creatures were made. And when God gave his first command to any creature, now you'll find in, uh, on the fifth day, it's the first time God commands anything. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters of the sea. Let birds multiply on the earth. In some sense, there's a command there. These themes, law and the promise of multiplication, you're going to multiply, are highlighted in the story of Abraham, which 11 to 27 to 25, 11 delineate. Those are the generations of Terah. Now, we'll look at this more tomorrow, but Terah gives birth to Abraham, but since this is the fifth section here, it corresponds to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, Abram honors his father by not moving into the promised land until after Terah is dead. And so Terah is an important figure in the sense that honoring the father means honoring Terah waiting for him to die before you do it. These are the offspring of Terah, Abraham, faithful offspring. But you notice Abraham is associated with the law. That's said a number of times. As God says to Isaac in chapter 26, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And also, of course, the whole business of multiplication is highlighted in the story of Abraham. God reiterates that a little bit to Isaac and Jacob, but not like he does to Abram by calling Abraham father of many and then Abraham father of a multitude. The whole idea of vast swarms of things are all over the place in the Abraham narrative. So that's the fifth day. 
the sixth day where man was created, we have the generations of Ishmael and Isaac corresponding to day six. This is the story of Jacob. This is the major theme here. Day six also has two sections, I suggest. Creation of helpful animals is like the generations of Ishmael. Ishmaelites were not at least initially enemies of Israel. They would be helpful. They are a type of God-fearers, but they're not the actual priests that God is setting up. And similarly, the land animals that are made in the beginning of sixth day are closest to human beings and most helpful to human beings. And then the creation of man, the generations of Isaac, 25:19 to 35:29, a section mainly concerned with Jacob, the perfect man. Jacob is said to be the perfect man. That's in, for those of you who don't know it, chapter 25:27. Boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, like Nimrod, a man of the field. Jacob was a perfect man. Translators will do anything to avoid this word. Perfect, Tom, perfect or blameless, living in tents. The same word that's used when God says to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. It's the same word that's used in Noah when it says Noah was perfect in his generations, and it's the same word used in Job when it says Job was a perfect man. So Jacob is the new Adam. He's the exemplary perfect man, and Esau is a new Adam who is the perfect foil. We've gotten to the sixth day, and now we have, because of sin, two exemplary situations. Jacob doesn't stay perfect, but he starts out, and of course he's only perfect by grace, but these stories are exemplary. Jacob is a model, and Esau is also a model. If you look at Esau, every single sin that has been committed in the book of Genesis up to this point, Esau commits. Esau wants At any rate, Esau is summing up all these sins. He is accumulation of sin, and Jacob is kind of an accumulation of all the wisdom up to that point, which is going to go a step further with Joseph. So these are men, individual men. With Abraham, it's a man who is also at the same time a multitude, father of many, fifth day. These are men who are individuals and were concerned with their wives, all very much six-day stuff, male and female. Adam goes to sleep and wakes up and gets a wife. Well, look what happens to Jacob. He goes into a dark tent and wakes up with two wives. So these things are parallel. There's relationships between them. And then finally, the last and Sabbath section of the book of the generations of Esau and Jacob, the false Sabbath and the true Sabbath. The Sabbath rest theme is very clear in the story of Joseph. In Joseph, we get into the land of Goshen, which is the best part of the land of Egypt. And what does Genesis 13.10 say about the land of Egypt? It's just like the Garden of Eden. So we're back at the Garden of Eden here. Adam, who is naked and got animal skins on him, has now become Joseph, who three times is given glorious robes to wear. The food theme at the beginning is now answered by Joseph, who is feeding bread to the world. Joseph is fulfilling all the things at the beginning of the book. You could end the Bible right there, except that we know that this is only a preliminary ending of the story. But the entire world is being fed by Joseph. It's very definitely got closure to it in terms of the whole book. The generations of Jacob is the story of Joseph. There is something of a foil with Judah. The generations of Esau in chapter 36 point to the fall of man, which happened on the Sabbath. Thus a false Sabbath rest is given to Esau as he multiplies and takes control, coming to kingship, while a true Sabbath rest is given to the godly. Sabbath is always associated with kingship. 
on the Sabbath day your work is finished, you sit down, you kick your shoes off, you're enthroned, you have a glass of wine, you get to rest, you're a king. Esau becomes a king here in chapter 36. The whole list of kings here. This is part of Genesis that was written much later because the last one of these kings is in the time of Solomon. But there's a whole list of kings here. But before that happened, God has just told Jacob, kings will come forth from you. And who's born right after God says that to Jacob? Benjamin is born. And Benjamin is the ancestor of Saul, the first king of Israel. So kingship becomes stressed at the end of the Jacob narrative. Esau, he becomes a king. Joseph, he winds up ruling the world. Sabbath, kingship comes at the end. Well, this is what's coming out. And it would be fun to do this in some depth and try to ask ourselves the same question I asked earlier. Why is it impossible to have sun, moon, and stars until after you have had grain plants and fruit trees? There's a reason for that. I don't know what it is. But there's a reason why God could not have made the sun, moon, and stars until after he had made those plants in terms of his plan. So there's a reason for it. And there's a reason why each one of these sections has to come before the next one, and what happens in one section generates what happens in the next section. It would be tremendously useful to look at this. And Rich gave some comments on this last year, how the problems in Isaac's sins have to be worked out by Jacob, and the mistakes Jacob makes at the end of his life by not cleaning up the idols cause his sons to become perverse, and Joseph has to clean that up. So there's a way in which these generations are moving. Sons are having to do what fathers fail to do, just as our children have to do what we fail to do. Unless you're Jeff, of course, and then you don't do anything wrong. But the rest of us leave problems for our sons. Hey, just kidding. It's Burke who leaves no problems for his sons. All your cats are black and all your dogs are white? So you're Laban. Laban spelled backwards is Nabal. <laughs> they know. <laughs> okay, that's a sketch of Genesis and some thoughts on the theology of it. What I want to do tomorrow is try to apply this to the Ten Commandments because I think these seven sections correspond to the first seven of the Ten Commandments. And the initial part of Exodus will give us a narrative that goes with the Eighth and Ninth Commandments leading up to the actual giving of them. All I can do is just set it out, but it might start your thinking, and next year somebody will come and deliver a lecture that does a whole lot more with it if it's any good. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.